So actually, I want you to turn to two, two scripture portions tonight to start with. We're going to be back in Genesis 47, but I'd also like you to find Habakkuk. Yes, I said Habakkuk, chapter 3. All right. Genesis 47 and Habakkuk, chapter 3. Tonight's message was actually going to be just part of last week's message. And if you were here last week, you realized I only got through two-thirds of the message. So tonight, we're going to just look at the one-third of the message from last week that's actually going to take the whole time this week. And if you followed that, you're good to go. Um, So, here's a question for us as we approach this passage tonight in Genesis 47. How good are we at handling or managing a crisis situation? That's what we're looking at here tonight in Genesis 47. We must remember in our study of the life of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis that Joseph is not just dealing with the reconciliation of his own family and dealing with his own family issues, but he is managing a crisis in Egypt, a severe famine has hit the land. If, if you recall, back in the earlier chapters of Genesis, uh, the whole reason that, Je- that Joseph is actually ascending to this high position in Egypt is because Pharaoh has this dream, and in this dream it's revealed to him by Joseph that there will be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph even encourages the Pharaoh to appoint someone in the kingdom to manage the seven good years so that there's enough put back in store to basically keep everybody alive during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed with the wisdom and insight of Joseph, not only to be able to interpret his dream, but to be able to in a sense, have a plan to manage this severe crisis that he puts Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Only Pharaoh is greater in Egypt than Joseph is. Well, now we are in the midst of this famine. And before we get into Genesis 47, I want to start out with this. The godly, the godly through faith will prosper even in the most difficult situations. The godly, through faith, will prosper even in the most difficult situations. God wants to build up His people and build into His people such wisdom and strength and courage and confidence and wherewithal that no matter what crisis comes into our life, whatever crisis Uh, we face, that we are able to deal with it in a calm and composed way because we are trusting in God all the way and we are managing it based upon what God has already revealed to us and how He has prepared us for that situation. And when I think of verses in the Bible that talk about this, it just came to my mind this great passage in Habakkuk chapter 3 It's actually the last three verses of the book. Look with me, please, in Habakkuk chapter 3, 
verses 17, 18, and 19. The prophet Habakkuk says, When the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, when the olive trees do not produce, and the fields yield no crops, when the sheep disappear from the pen, and there are no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice because of the Lord. I will be happy because of the God who delivers me. The sovereign Lord is my source of strength. He gives me the agility of a deer. He enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. I love that. And I love the way the Net Bible translates that in the Hebrew. He he allows me, he enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. That's what God wants to do with his people. That's why he wants us, as we talked about Sunday, to enter into his training program and to allow ourselves to grow and increase and advance and get built up because weak people don't survive well when challenges and crises of life come up. They crumble. They're crushed by them. They collapse. God wants to make His people strong so that no matter what happens and what comes into our life, again, through faith, we can prosper. And just like the prophet Habakkuk said, the one thing we can always keep in mind is even if everything temporarily or temporally is taken from us, the most important thing can't be taken away from us, and that's our relationship with God. That's why he says, I've got God. Everything else can be taken from me. Everything else is finite and fragile and fleeting. But God is not, and my relationship with God is not. It is eternal. It is the rock upon which we all stand. Now, we don't know what our future holds, both individually and as a nation and as a world. We know some of what is coming based upon biblical prophecy, but we don't know it all. And so I think God wants his people to be ready to face crisis situations. And so tonight, we're going to learn a lot, I think, about crisis management from the book of Genesis. So if you go back to Genesis 47 and verse 13, we're just going to look tonight at verses 13 through 26, the passage from chapter 47 that we didn't cover last week. And this is all about, really, how Joseph managed the famine in Egypt. You'll notice it says there in verse 13, but there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe in the land of Egypt. And the land of Canaan wasted away because of the famine. The words wasted away mean to languish, to faint, or literally to burn up. The land was burning. It was dry. It was parched. There was no food. Now keep your finger there in Genesis 47 for a moment, and let's refresh our memories by going back to Genesis 41 for just a second. And look at verse 35 and 36. In verse 35 and 36, again, we read, this is Joseph's instructions to Pharaoh, his advice of what 
Pharaoh should do in lieu of the fact that a famine is coming. He said, they should gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming. And by Pharaoh's authority, they should store up grain so the cities will have food and they should preserve it. This food should be held in storage. Literally, it should be retained. It should be deposited in a reserve for the land in preparation for the seven years of famine that will occur throughout the land of Egypt. In this way, the land will survive the famine. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, he talks about the importance of preparation. God gave this revelation, this dream to Pharaoh and the interpretation of it to Joseph so that the people could have time to prepare. God always works that way. He is always preparing His people. You and I, whatever we're engaged in, whatever training we're going through now, whatever strengthening we're going through now, isn't just for the moment, it's for down the road. God is preparing us for what is ahead. And God is really the only one that knows what's ahead for us individually and for us corporately. And so God is saying to us, don't neglect the preparation. Think of this. What if Pharaoh would have blown him off? What if none of the Egyptians would have listened to Joseph? What if they said, ah, that's just a bunch of bunk. You don't know what you're talking about. Or else they would have done this. When the seven years of plenty came, they would have been like a lot of people. It's like, you know what? We have it so good. I don't believe that the seven years of famine will ever come. Let's just use it all up. No, they didn't. They had to trust in the word of Joseph, which really is the word of God, to remind them that even though it was good now, it wasn't going to stay good. It was going to get really, really bad. And they needed to prepare for that. You and I always need to, as the people of God, if we're going to handle crisis, if we're going to manage crisis, if we're going to survive crisis, if we're going to thrive through crisis, we always have to understand and have the mindset that we are in preparation and that we are always being prepared by God for what is coming. And that's why we always have to be diligent in the moment. And be attentive to what God wants us to be involved with. Because we're not just talking about the here and now. We're talking about down the road. And that's why we can't live life so short-sightedly. We have to look beyond the here and now. So many people, including Christians, just live for the moment. Just for the here and now. But it's not about that. It's about the now and what's to come. And so Joseph is reminding the folks here, we need to prepare we can't wait for the seven years of plenty to be over and the seven years of famine to hit and then figure out what to do. God is giving us seven years to prepare. And so we've got to take advantage, seize that opportunity of those seven years, and we've got to be attentive to what we need to do. We've got to take all the excess food that we can and we've got to deposit it put it in storage, we've got to retain it and put it back or we will not survive the seven years of famine. That's how bad it's going to be. So I want us to keep that in mind tonight. 
that yes, we through faith can prosper even in the worst conditions, but one of the ways that we do that is by always reminding ourselves that God is preparing us for what is to come, and we need to heed that preparation and be diligent in our preparation at all times. Then you'll notice this. Again, because there was no food, verse 13, and all the land of, uh, because of the famine was severe, the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan, wasted away because of the famine. Then Joseph, verse 14, collected all the money that could be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the grain that they were buying. Notice a couple things. First of all, Joseph took control of their purses. And there were no handouts. There there was no just giving people grain for nothing. They had to pay for it, you see. Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. But before I do that, Joseph here, when you talk about preparation, God was really, really preparing Joseph for this moment, for these kind of moments, all his life. And I want to remind us that God does the same thing in our lives. Every season of our life, everything that you and I go through, nothing is purposeless, but all of it is preparing us, again, for what is to come and for how our life is going to ebb and flow and what we're going to face. Think about the trials that Joseph faced in his life. First of all, his mother died while he was very young. Two, his family was in a constant state of upheaval. Three, there was jealousy, hatred, and infighting within his family. Four, he was betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers. Five, he was lied about and falsely accused in Egypt by Potiphar's wife. Six, he was in prison for a long time. Even then, next, the one who promised to help him while he was in prison forgot about him for two more years. All of these things, all of these incidences and trials and challenges that Joseph faced in his life was preparing him to be strong enough and wise enough and dependent on the Lord enough to be able to manage something as big enough as the entire famine that affected not only the land of Egypt, but the land of Canaan and really much of the Middle East at that time. And to preserve thousands, if maybe not millions of people alive during such a severe crisis. This famine is actually written about in history. It is so bad. In non-biblical literature, it made that big of an impact in the world at that time, you see. And again, so I want to remind us that all of life is a preparation. God has you and and me now preparing us for what's to come. I believe that these, these times as a church, as I've said, I'm very conscious that God wants us as a corporate body of believers, a community of believers, to, to allow Him to prepare us for when we get over to Greenfield and Queen Creek. Because once we get there, there's going to be new challenges and, and new opportunities and new things, but we've got to be prepared for that. 
We can't wait till we get there and then go, okay, now let's, let's try to rise to the challenge and rise to the occasion. No, no. Now's the time to let God prepare us. And then once we get there, then He's going to start preparing us for what He has then planned for us next. God does that corporately with churches. God does that individually with us as well, just like He did with Joseph. And so again, we've got to give careful attention and and take heed and be diligent to the things that God wants to build into our lives and prepare us for, and know that even the trials of life, the things that were out of our control, and the things that God didn't do, but the things that God worked through, all are part of that preparation. Again, God can even bring good out of the evil that others do to us, as we've seen in the case of Joseph and his brothers. So, back to Genesis 47... Joseph took control of the purses of Egypt. Then Joseph, at the end of verse 14, brought the money into Pharaoh's palace. When the money from the lands of Egypt and Canaan was used up, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your very eyes? Because our money has run out. You'll notice what's happening here. That the Egyptians are brought to the end of themselves and their own resources, and therefore they see the need that, that Joseph, that he's got to be their answer. They don't have an If Joseph can't help them, they're going to die. And in a sense, what you see here is even in a, in a bigger picture, uh, what needs to happen in people's lives when it comes to even our relationship with God that we have got to come to the end of ourselves and to the end of our own resources to try to save ourselves and deliver ourselves to where we finally realize, I can't do this myself. I've got to rely and depend on someone else to do do it for me. And and even though this was a big famine, this is, in a, a small way, the big picture of how people have to come even in salvation to God. We first have to recognize, I can't save myself. I can't conquer sin on my own. I can't overcome all this on my own. I have exhausted all my resources. I just fall in humility and and, and mercy upon God and say, God, save me a sinner. I need you, as we sang about tonight. Well, that's where the Egyptians were. They were like, Okay, we've got no more money, but we're going to starve, so you've got to do something, Joseph. And, of course, we know back earlier on, after Joseph gave this wonderful wisdom and advice to Pharaoh, Pharaoh basically tells the people even back then, he says, when this famine comes, go to Joseph. Don't come to me. And whatever Joseph tells you, do it. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Now, I want to point this out. As followers of God... Guess what? God wants to take control of our purses too. It's not my money. It's God's money. And therefore, God should be in control of it, not me. And whatever I have, it comes from the Lord. So therefore, it's really His. And you see this, again, even in this crisis management of how Joseph did this. Now, yes, we realize in this situation, and we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight, when especially major crises come up, usually power is consolidated. 
And just like here, that's been true throughout history. The power was consolidated in the throne of Egypt. And it can be a good thing, actually, if the person in charge is a godly, God-fearing person. But when the people in charge have this consolidated power because of a crisis, and they're evil, and they're wicked, and then they're ungodly, oh my, all kinds of harm and damage and destruction can come from. Because it all depends on really who's in charge. Follow me? We'll, we'll come back to that thought too. I'm weaving a lot of different things here tonight, because again, this is a little bit different than what I planned to do tonight, but I didn't want to miss out on such a great passage of Scripture. So then, you'll notice in verse 16, Joseph now not only takes control of their purses, now Joseph takes control of their possessions. Notice it says, Then Joseph said, If your money is gone, bring your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the livestock of their flocks and herds, their donkeys. He got them through that year by giving them food in exchange for livestock. So now Joseph is taking control of their purses and now he's taking control of their possessions. And again, I say this and applying it to us. If the Lord is the Lord of our lives, then God should not only have control of our purses, he should also have control of our possessions. Because again, everything that we own has come from his good hand and it's not really ours, it's his. We're just stewards managing it. It's his. If he wants me to use this possession for this or that possession, that's up to him because he should be in control of the purse and he should be in control of my possessions. Then notice verse 18. When that year was over, they came to him the next year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord that the money is used up and the livestock and the animals belong to our Lord. Nothing remains before our Lord except our bodies and our land. So now Joseph takes control of their property. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will become Pharaoh's slaves. Give us seed that we may live and not die. Then the land will not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Each of the Egyptians sold his field, for the famine was severe. So the land became Pharaoh's. And again I say that not only was this true during the famine... But this should be true in our lives. God should have control of not only our purses and our possessions, but our property as well. By the way, many people have a problem with what Joseph is doing here. The, problem, or the, the, the thing, that the truth of the matter is, the reality is, if Joseph would not have handled it in this manner, the rich people in the kingdom would have taken advantage of the poor people, which always happens in crisis situations, and it would have ended up in anarchy, and nobody would have been able to manage the crisis. It was only because of the godly leadership of Joseph that anyone survived. Then notice verse 20, 21. Joseph then took control of their persons... And when you read about them becoming slaves, we've got to eject out of our minds the idea that we come to in America of equating slavery here in Genesis 
with slavery from our own country's history. Not the same. Okay? Not the same. Okay? Joseph made all the people slaves from one end of Egypt's border to the other end of it, but he did not purchase the land of the priests because the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh. They ate from their allotment that Pharaoh gave them. This is why they did not sell their land. Again, we are to be a slave or servant of the Lord. Our bodies are not our own, as we talked about even Sunday. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have been bought with the price. Therefore, we are not our own. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service for what God has done. We should be willing servants and slaves of the Lord and allow Him not only to take control of our purse, our possessions, our property, but our persons. We should be His at His disposal, saying, here I am, God, whatever you want, from me, I'm your willing servant. And then finally in verse 23 here, Joseph took control of their positions. Joseph said to the people, since I have brought you in your land today, or bought you in your land today, excuse me for Pharaoh, here is seed for you. Again, he wasn't just giving them handouts. He was saying, cultivate the land. Raise up food for yourselves after the famine has come to sort of an end and they can get back on their feet. And when you gather in the crop, notice, give one-fifth or 20% of it to Pharaoh and the rest will be yours for seed for the fields and for you to eat, including those in your households and your little children. Basically, give the government, if you will, 20%, but everything else, you keep 80% of everything else that you've earned for yourself. Oh, if we only could give 20%. One-fifth. Government wants more than that. And always will. So in this case, again, notice something here. Some people say, oh man, Joseph, man, he's, he's just in control of everything. He's gone crazy. He's gone mad. Power's gone to his head. No. He's managing a crisis in a way that's actually not not benefiting him personally at all. It's enabling the people of the land to survive such a severe crisis. And we know that because of the reaction of the people. Notice in verse 25 their reaction. They replied, You have saved our lives. You have preserved us. You are showing us favor, being gracious to us and kind. And we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Again, same principle in our walk with God. There's a picture here beyond what's happening in Egypt thousands of years ago. When God saves us, He not only wants to be our Savior, He wants to be our Lord. He's to be in the lead. He's to be in control. 
He's to be the one running things, not us. And therefore, He should be taking control of each and every part of our lives, as I've shared before. That's what our sanctification in the Bible, that word, is all about. We are saved in a moment in time by trusting in faith or by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross and subsequent resurrection. But we are sanctified for a lifetime. And when you and I get saved, it's not that we don't get all of God and that we have to get more and more of God throughout our lives. No, we get all of God, but when we're saved, God doesn't get all of us. So our sanctification is, in a sense, learning and growing to surrender more and to submit more of our life over to Him and under His control. And where we get to a point, like the people of Egypt, where we obey the voice of the Lord just as they did everything Joseph asked them to do, they did it. And they became willing, voluntary servants. Just as God asks us to be willing, voluntary servants. He doesn't force us. He doesn't make us His servants. He asks us to be privileged servants of His. So you see that big picture here playing out here. See, they they understood that without Joseph's wisdom and insight and management of this thing, they would have all been sunk. First of all, they wouldn't have even known what Pharaoh's dream was all about unless Joseph would have interpreted for them. And they wouldn't have had the idea that Joseph had to make sure that in that seven years of good that we put back enough to be able to get us through the seven years that was coming. And isn't it interesting that if it wouldn't have been for Joseph putting it all back, that uh, the implication is nobody put anything back on their own. Because when the seven years came and there was no food in the land and the famine was severe, who did they go running to? They didn't go running to their own homes and go, oh, you know what, we put enough back to be able to get us through. They went running to Joseph because they didn't have any. If it wouldn't have been for Joseph managing it like he did, again, they would have all died. And they recognized that. And so they were willing to be servants of Egypt. So verse 26 says, Joseph made it a statute, which is in effect to this day throughout the land of Egypt. One-fifth belongs to Pharaoh. Only the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. And this is how Joseph managed such a severe crisis in the land of Egypt. He did it in such a decisive, confident way that the people actually respected him and looked at him as one who was actually delivering them and saving them from a great tragedy. Now let me say this for a moment. I want to take what's happening here and I want to bring it up into our present day and even beyond and apply this in some way, in a further way here. As I said earlier, The only way this kind of control works and works for everybody is when the right person is in charge. 
if the wrong person is in charge, disaster happens. And the people who are in power are only there for themselves. They're not really there to help anyone else. There's coming a day, not too far from now, I I don't believe, where after the rapture of the church, the Bible teaches that a man that the Bible calls the Antichrist is going to come to worldwide power. And he literally is going to be in control. And part of what's going to bring him to power and consolidate his power as it is, is because of the crises that are going to exist in the world that's going to bring that about. And we see it coming even in our lifetime. Folks, there is an economic worldwide meltdown coming. And beyond that, there is much more that is being already laid. The foundation, the Bible says, for the Antichrist is already being laid even now. The world is getting ready to sort of fall off a cliff. And what's going to happen is that Satan is going to bring forth this man and give him such ability and insight from a satanic supernatural perspective that he's going to be able to start giving answers and finding solutions to these crises all over the world that seem to be stumping everybody else. And because of that, the power then of the world is going to be consolidated in this man and he's going to seize control of the world. He's going to be in control of the world's purses and possessions and property and positions and all of that. The problem with that is, unlike Joseph, who was a godly individual and who did this just to help people, this man, just like other world leaders and other national leaders throughout history who have ascended to positions of power only for themselves, it's going to obviously do much destruction and damage on the earth. But then we go past that. Let's end on a good note. The Bible says after the Antichrist kingdom is put down by the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because the Bible predicts in the book of Daniel that the Antichrist kingdom, even though it is in a sense worldwide, will only last a very short time. And then the Bible tells us that there is coming an earthly kingdom in which Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on the earth for 1,000 years. And Jesus will be in control. Complete control. He will rule, the Bible says, with a rod of iron. And He will rule in righteousness. And He will be in control. But again, even greater than Joseph, because of His righteous character, because of who He is, 
The environment on the earth and the conditions on the earth will be unlike anything you and I and anyone ever on earth has ever seen. Because we've never been part of something so right, so good. It's always been corrupt to some degree. It's always been tainted because every time man gets in power and positions of power, they usually use it for themselves and not ultimately for the benefit of others. And yet what we see is at least an example in history where there was one godly man who was able to take all that power and instead of abusing it, he used it for right. And he saved a lot of people because of it. And it is a picture way long time ago of the coming millennial kingdom when the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of the ancestor of his David and rule the earth and take control of all things and an unbelievable climate and environment will exist on the earth for a thousand years. The Bible talks about it being a time where the lion and the lamb will lie down together, where babies will actually be able to play on the, on the dens of, of adders and asps and not be afraid, where people will beat their, you know, swords into plowshares, and, and there will be no war or anything anymore as long as Jesus Christ is in control. It's a place where righteousness will dwell. And the reason it is, is because of the one who's in control. See, that's what God wants us to see. He wants us to see that He asks for control not because He's trying to abuse us or sell us a bill of goods or, you know, make our life miserable or give us what's less. And No, He knows that if He has control of our lives, it's going to be good for us. That, that if we let Him manage our life and take control, it's only going to be a blessing for us. It's only going to end up good. It's when we, just like other people, try to take control of things and manage it ourselves without God that we end up messing things up. And you and I all know we live in a nation and a world where men and women have seized control and seized power to the very highest levels of government, both in our land and all around the world, who are corrupt, who are tainted, who are ungodly, who use these positions not for others, but for themselves. And what have they brought on all of us? Now, fortunately, that's not all you and I get to look forward to we get to look forward to a coming kingdom and being part of a kingdom that Jesus Christ rules over and then after that being part of his eternal kingdom as well. In closing, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 7. And I want to leave you with three principles tonight about crisis. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 
27. Before we look at this passage tonight, let me share these with you. First of all, this principle. Crises are no respecter of persons. Crises are no respecter of persons. In Egypt, when the famine came, Pharaoh was hungry, and so was the lowest person in society in Egypt, whoever that was, was hungry. It affected everybody. When natural disasters happen and and things happen, it affects everybody. It doesn't just hit a certain strata of society. When these big things happen, everyone is affected. People who have means and people who don't have means, they're all affected by it. Second, crises cause us to rethink our purposes. Crises cause us to rethink our purposes. I mean, in this case, their purpose was basically reduced to go to Joseph and whatever Joseph tells you, do it. That was their purpose. Isn't it amazing how we can get caught up and distracted by so many other purposes, but when crisis comes, it's like, no, here's the one thing I really need to do. And somehow, when crises come into our life, all of a sudden we get a laser focus when it comes to purpose. When crises aren't in our life and it seems like, you know, we're just going along, you know, happy and everything's going well, we, we tend to get so off course and distracted by so many things But when a crisis comes, all of a sudden, boom, I get locked in. And then third, crises cause us to reevaluate our priorities. Crises cause us to reevaluate our priorities. Did you notice throughout this, as Joseph took more and more control, that people really could care less? Though they might have cared about all their money at the beginning and all their possessions and all their property and that they put such a focus on all that, at the end of the day, none of those things mattered when they were hungry. All that mattered was getting something to eat. All they cared about was give me some food. You want my money? Take my money. You want my property? Take my property. You want my possessions? Take my possessions. You want me? You got me. I'm hungry. Here we go. There's my priority. That's what happened. When crisis hits our lives, all of a sudden we begin to reevaluate what's really important. Sadly, though, even as Christians, we as human beings can somehow change the trajectory of our life for a while, but if we're not careful, we end up going right back to where we were before. Because those ruts that we dig, those those routines that we dig into our lives can be so deep, those grooves in the record of our life can be so deep, and we cut them so deep that in order to get out of them, it, it takes even more sometimes in a huge crisis. I mean, think about it. We're only, what, 14 years removed from 9-11. And I can still remember because obviously we were living near New York City and we were living actually near the, the, the field in Pennsylvania and we were living at one time near the Pentagon. I've been to all three of those places even before 9-11 happened. I knew where each of those places were. 
And after 9-11 happened, I can remember, man, the country and the people and their attitude. And all of a sudden, people flocked to church and, 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 and things that weren't that important a day or a week or a month before, now all of a sudden became important. And people started to reevaluate their purposes and their priorities and change things. But many those changes were very short-lived. After a while, they went right back and reverted back to the way they were living before. Because now, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's a distant memory now. And that's what happens. Something you and I have to be careful of. And we'll talk more about that in a series on prophecy that I'm going to be doing after we finish the life of Joseph before the end of the year. So, Matthew, I want to leave you with this. This is a great passage that really deals with even being prepared for crisis when storms come into our life. And notice what Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. So it's not enough just to hear the word of God. I've got to apply it to my life every day. That person, Jesus says, is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the flood came, the winds beat against the house, but it did not collapse because it had been founded on rock. That's how you and I survive crisis. By being prepared and by hearing and doing the word of God every day. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. The same storms came into both lives. The one was prepared to stand because it was a person who was always giving attention to the Lord, letting the Lord take the lead in their lives, listening to the Word of God, and applying the Word of God to their life on a daily basis. They were living their life on a rock, on a solid foundation, firm, so that when things happened, they stood the test. They didn't crumble or collapse. But there are others who, even in hearing the Word of God, they do not apply it to their life daily. And therefore, when crisis comes into their life, They crumble and they collapse under the pressure of the crisis because they do not have the strength that is necessary that should be building up into their lives every day through their relationship with the Lord to be able to withstand the storm. Storms will come into all of our lives. Crisis will hit all of us. Adversity will come. The Bible teaches us that. No one can escape it. The only difference is, are we prepared for it or not? Will we be a people who are prepared for what's coming? Or will we just say, ah, it'll never come. Bad times aren't going to, it's not going to get any worse. It can't get any worse. And I'm not going to go through anything worse than what I've already been through in my life, so I can just take it easy. I think the wise person would be the one that says, you know what? I don't know what's coming, but I know I need to be prepared. And I want to build my house on rock so that no matter what comes, my life can withstand the storms that are coming. I hope that that 
is all of our desire tonight. That we want to be like the one that not only hears the word, but does the word of God in our life and builds our life on rock. Let's pray. God, we do believe that storms are on the horizon. The storm clouds are evident. And Lord, even in our own life, we don't know what a day may bring forth. But God, what you do tell us and what you do promise us is that if we will trust you, that the godly through faith will be able to prosper even in the most difficult of situations. And Lord, I pray tonight that each of us will recommit ourselves to crisis management 101. That we will begin and continue building our life on rock. That we will strive to hear the word of God and do it every opportunity we get. So that God, our life will be built on a firm and solid foundation. Make us strong, God. Because we need to be very, very strong in the days in which we live. And we need to be very strong for the days that are coming. So Lord, make us strong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. Don't forget, see if you can't maybe invite somebody to come with you on Sunday to church. And we'll see you on Sunday.